we are working our way through the book of Proverbs, which is quite an adventure, quite a challenge, and it's been a, a fruitful uh, study. From my perspective, I hope it's been good from uh, your perspective, but we're so, so glad that you're here tonight. We're going to be focusing on Proverbs chapter 14 through 17. If you want to go ahead and, and find your place there, Proverbs 14 through 17. How's everyone tonight? Everybody doing good? All right. All right. Y'all don't look too lively. Middle of the week, busy. Okay, all right. Ate too much. All right. Good to have our meals starting back. You know, the during the summertime, we take Wednesday night meals off, and so usually I don't eat dinner until I get home from church on Wednesday nights, which I'm hungry when I preach, and when I'm hungry, I, I, I get angry. If I preach angry, and that just doesn't work good, so... So I'll be a I'll be a jollier, happier preacher now that I'm I'm fed. So uh, I want you to be aware of that. So glad you're here. Now let me let me pray for us, and then we will jump right into the book of Proverbs. Got a lot of good ground to cover tonight. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we're so grateful that we can call you Father. We're so grateful for the relationship we have with you, uh, that's made available, made possible by Jesus. We we have placed our faith, our full trust in the finished work of Christ. Jesus became our substitutionary sacrifice. He died for our sins. He took the wrath of God in our place. And, and Jesus rose from the dead and defeated the grave. And, and because of that, we can be forgiven. We can be transformed. We can be given the hope of eternal life. We're just so grateful for all the blessings that are ours in Christ. And I pray that as we study this, this book of wisdom, that, that Christ would be magnified and honored and, and glorified. And Father, I pray that you would use the study tonight to give us all a, a deeper hunger for and appreciation of your word. Uh, Lord, make us a people uh, that, that love the Bible, that thirst for your word. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. We love you tonight. We praise you. And ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you just a bit of review as we think about the book of Proverbs. As you see, we've made it to chapter 14. Uh, so we finish tonight. We'll be over uh, halfway through uh, this book because we're going to go through chapter 17. book of Proverbs is an interesting, interesting book. And the summary of this book it comes from Kendall Easley, and this is something I like to use. He was a professor at Mid-America Seminary, and he, he really, really does a good job of these book summaries. And here's his, here's his summary. Those who follow God's wise design for living is what the book of Proverbs is about. Those who follow God's wise design for living, particularly in areas of sexual purity and integrity of speech, avoid the perils that others fall into and enjoy life on earth as God meant it to be lived. And so Proverbs is trying to give us some guidance to live life the way God intended us to live life, which should cause us, our ears to perk up and say, I want to know more about that. And here's my summary. That was a good summary, Dr. Easley. I wrote a summary as well. The summary is this. We need to acquire and apply God's wisdom in our daily lives to experience God's blessings and avoid destructive consequences. Let me read that again. We need to acquire 
and apply. Did you know you can acquire wisdom but not apply it? I.e. Solomon, who wrote these. Wisest man uh, other than Christ that ever walked on the face of this earth. And yet he made some very foolish decisions. He had the wisdom, but he did not always live according to the wisdom. And so Proverbs is all about us acquiring and applying God's wisdom in our daily lives to experience God's blessings and avoid destructive consequences. That's what this book is about. Most of it is written by Solomon. If I had to outline it, a basic outline of this book would be chapters 1 through 9. In in those chapters, we see a father's call to wisdom. Those chapters are basically a father telling his son, this is what you need to watch out for, this is how you need to live. Then chapters 10 through 22, which we're in the middle of right now, uh, are various uh, Proverbs of Solomon. And, and they're not always related to one another. I mean, one verse may be talking about integrity. The next verse may be talking about money. The next verse may be talking about speech. And it just kind of jumps around as he just kind of writes these Proverbs down and collects them for us to glean from. So they're hard to preach from because it's hard sometimes to find a theme. I'll talk about that in a, more, in a few moments. Uh, some, one author said that these Proverbs are like pearls on a string. He gets a string and just kind of puts pearls on the string. And and they may not be related, but they're strung together for us to read and to learn from. So that's chapters 10 through 22. Starting in chapter 22 through 24, we see 30 sayings of the wise. That's going to be interesting. There were 30 collected sayings of the wise in this day and time. And they go through them, all 30. So we're going to look at those 30 sayings of the wise right in the middle of, of that passage, 22 through 24. Then in 25 through 29, you get to see some more Proverbs of Solomon, he starts stringing some more pearls together, not based upon thematics, but just based upon the order in which he uh, recorded them. Chapter 30, you see the wise words of Agur. We'll talk some more about that when we get there. And then chapter 31, we see the wise words of King Lemuel. There's some debate over who King Lemuel was, so we'll talk about who King Lemuel was when we get there. And Proverbs 31, of course, is the famous uh, passage for the the excellent the excellent uh, wife. Uh, so. We'll uh, cover that as well. So we've made it to uh, the Proverbs of Solomon found uh, in uh, kind of the middle part of this book. So look there in chapter 14 with me. Proverbs chapter 14. I told you to get there. I might as well get there as well. As I was studying this, I'm, I'm telling you, Proverbs is hard to teach because it jumps around so much. So as I was studying Proverbs uh, 14, 15, 16, 17, I was thinking, what, what are some things, how can I relate this without just kind of going every verse and talking about that verse? And I began to think about it, and uh, the Lord began to show me, I really believe, some interesting uh, parallels with another passage of Scripture. So I'm, I want to make that connection with you and then kind of draw some application from that connection. So if you look there in your notes, if you want to just follow along with me on your notes, we're going to talk about wisdom and fruitful living. I believe what Solomon has to say to us here is, uh, is related to, directly related to our fruitfulness in life, right? So if you want to bear fruit, if you want good, by fruit I mean good things coming out of your life, God-honoring things coming out of your life. If you want to bear fruit, if you want God-honoring things happening from your life, there's some, there's some insight here that we can learn from. So number one, here's the first thing I want you to see. Walking in wisdom is synonymous with a spirit-filled life. Now, the title of this entire study is Walking in Wisdom. We're going through the book of Proverbs. 
And I believe that walking in wisdom is synonymous. It's, it's the same thing. You can't separate them. It's synonymous with the Spirit-filled life. Now, now, let me tell you why I believe this. If you look there in your notes, there are parallels in Proverbs with the fruit of the Spirit. Now, to kind of orient you towards the fruit of the Spirit, let's turn to Galatians very quickly, New Testament. Book of Galatians, Pauline Epistle. Galatians chapter 5. Now, one of the mistakes I think people make when they talk about the fruit of the Spirit is they, is they parachute into Galatians, and they land right on the verse that talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and they don't look around at the context. I think to understand the fruit of the Spirit, you need to understand there, there's some other fruit you can bear in your life, the fruit of the flesh. And before you get to the fruit of the Spirit, Paul lists the fruit of the flesh. Look what it says there in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, by the way, that thing parachuting and landing on the verse, that just came to me right then. I thought that was cool. Do you like that? Parachuting, landing on the verse, no context. I'm going to use that some more. I like that. So, Galatians, you thought I thought that out, but it just came to me. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. So here are the deeds of the flesh. It's a terrible list. You ready? Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, the, the flesh no longer has power over us unless we let it. And it says in verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. And so you read that passage, the fruit of the Spirit. Then you begin to look at what Solomon is talking about, kind of the middle part of Proverbs, and you begin to see some parallels here. The, the, the things he's talking about are synonymous with what Paul lists as the fruit of the Spirit. So let me just show you this. We're going to walk through the nine uh, fruits that Paul mentions here. And I want to show you the parallel in the book of Proverbs. Everybody with me? You know what we're doing? Got it? Kind of got this down? First of all, let's talk about love. Let's talk about love. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, look in Proverbs with me. Chapter 15, verse 9. Let me show you that Solomon talks about love. Proverbs 15, verse 9. He writes, The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves one who pursues righteousness. So speaking of God's love for us, and you understand that we can only love God because he first loved us. Right? It's what the Bible says. 1 John 4 says, we love God because he first loved us. We weren't walking around one day and, and suddenly thought, you know what, I think I'm going to get saved today. The only reason that we're saved is because God initiated his work in our lives. He, he knocked on the door of our heart. The Bible says, Jesus says in John 6, 44, 
No man can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. So for you to come to Jesus, you had to be drawn by the Father. That's what Jesus says. So that means that we should be grateful for God's grace that initiates the work of salvation in our lives. And he mentions here the love of God uh, for us, which we then begin to live out. Because look what it says over in chapter 17, Proverbs 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And so we see here that, that Solomon mentions vertical love. We connect to God's love, and he loves us, and we love him. And then we begin to live out that love horizontally for others, our friends, our brothers, our family, uh, our, our church family. That love goes horizontal. And so even in the midst of all these different proverbs about all these different things, uh, we see that Solomon... Uh, has a concern for love. And so he's definitely talking about uh, living out one of the fruit of the fruits of the Spirit, the, 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 spe- the fruit of love. Secondly, we see the fruit of joy. The fruit of joy. Look over with me in Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15. I'm going to show you these parallels. I'm going to make some application, okay? Proverbs 15, verse 13 is a great verse. A joyful heart makes a cheerful face. Joy, joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. And so speaking here of the impact in our lives of a joyful heart. Then look over in verse 15 of that same chapter. All the days of the afflicted are bad, but a cheerful heart has a continual feast. In other words, there's contentment that comes when you have a cheerful heart. And then look with me over in chapter 17, verse 22. You may recognize this verse. It's quoted often. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. When I uh, pastored in, in Memphis when I was in seminary, the church called me to be their senior pastor when I was 24. And some of you heard me say this. Uh, the average age, age of the congregation was 72. Remember this, Murray? Murray and I were on staff together uh, at this church. And average age was 72. And so you can imagine, I mean, it's like their great-grandson pastoring them. And you can imagine, you know, what their, their thought was, this young guy uh, pastoring them. But we had a lady there. Her name was Miss Jennings. Remember Miss Jennings? And uh, she, would, she would sit kind of on the second row about right there. And, and she didn't hear real well. She was in her late 90s. And so when she talked, everyone could hear her, and she would comment liberally about, you know, the song that was being sung or someone's hairstyle changing, or, and everybody, everybody heard her. But, but, but we love Miss Jean. She was a faithful, faithful uh, servant. And uh, I remember going to visit her one time at her house, and I remember her, I would never forget it, she quoted this verse to me. As a matter of fact, I went back to my, to my Bible, and I wrote down Miss Jennings beside this verse because I wanted to, to remember that connection because she didn't take any medicine and she was just remarkable i know some of that's genetic and all of that but but she had a joyful heart and i think there's something to that i, I really do think there's something to that. i believe and i don't think we talk enough about this in in church life i believe there's a connection between the soul and the spirit and the body i really do i really do and i can't explain i can't articulate it we'll understand it better when we get to heaven but i know that a joyful heart is better for you physically than a anxious heart, a weighed down heart, a discontented heart, right? And, and, and Solomon says this, a, a joyful heart is, is good 
like a medicine. And so, just like Paul mentions joy being a fruit of the Spirit, Solomon talks about the importance of joy if we're going to live a wise life. Let's talk about the fruit of peace. Peace. Look in chapter 14, verse 30. This is a very important verse. Chapter 14 of, of Proverbs. I know we're turn, turning around a lot, but we've got a lot of different verses to look at. Proverbs 14, verse 30. A tranquil heart. So we talked about a joyful heart. Now we're talking about a tranquil heart, a, a contented heart. A tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. That would be misdirected passion, evil passion, and desire. So a tranquil heart, a, a contented heart, is, is life to the body. And so there's something about having peace, knowing that you're a child of God, knowing that he has you in his hand, knowing he has the whole world in his hand, knowing that he's in control, knowing that nothing can break your relationship with him. And because of that, no matter what life throws your direction, you can live with contentment, right? Paul talked about contentment over in Philippians 4. He said, listen, I've learned the secret of, of being hungry and having plenty of food in my belly. I've learned the secret of being thirsty or having all the water I need to drink. I've, I've learned the secret of, of having little or having an abundance. And he said, I've learned to be content in every circumstance. What's the secret? Philippians 4.13, I can do it. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And so the fruit of the Spirit is peace, a, a contented heart, a tranquil heart. And Solomon picks up on that same theme. A tranquil heart is good. It's life to the body. And so he... He makes that connection, or we make that connection. We see what Solomon has to say. And, and then next, I want to talk to you about kindness for a minute. Kindness. Let me tell you one thing that's evaporating in our culture. Kindness. Even in the church, we're seeing the idea of just, just basic kindness to each other. Just, just evaporate. I don't know if it's because we, people are busy nowadays or people are miserable or I don't know what it is. But, but we see this happening. So look what it says in chapter 14. Proverbs 14, verse 21. Solomon writes, He who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. He who despises his neighbor, he who is not kind, is sinning. But it's a good thing. There's actually a happiness that comes when we are kind to others. That's what the Bible says, right? And then look in verse 31 of this same chapter. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. In other words, when you mess with somebody that is defenseless, you're messing with God himself. That's serious business. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him, honors his maker. And so he, he speaks here of the importance of being gracious to those that have needs in their life, just being kind. And so the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. And over here in Proverbs, Solomon says, a wise life is a kind life. Are you seeing the parallel there? Are you seeing the connection? I'll, I'll show you how all this lines up in a minute. But let's talk about goodness for a moment. Goodness. Look in chapter 15, verse 23 of Proverbs. A man has joy in an apt answer. How delightful is a timely word or a good word. Look in chapter 16, verses 20 through 22. 
he who gives attention to the word will find what? He who gives attention to the word will find what? Good. You want some goodness in your life? Give attention to the word. Pretty simple, right? Blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. And then look in uh, chapter, or verse 21. The wise in heart will be called understanding. And sweetness of speech increases, increases persuasiveness. Understanding is a fountain of life to one who has it, but the discipline of fools is folly. So it, it's, it's good to be good is what he's saying. And then look in chapter 17, verse 20 with me. He who has a crooked mind finds no good. And he who is perverted in his language falls into evil. So one who has a crooked mind will not find good uh, in his life. And, and, and Solomon here mentions the idea of goodness, doing the right thing for the right reason, finding the joy that comes from that. And then Solomon touches on the idea of faithfulness, being faithful to God. Look in chapter 14, verse 2. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord. So uprightness there carries with it the idea of doing the right thing, being faithful to the Lord, fearing the Lord. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. And then verses 26 and 27 of chapter 14, look what Solomon writes. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. So I believe the fear of the Lord is, is synonymous with being faithful. Faithful people fear God. Look what it says in chapter 15, verse 9. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves one who pursues righteousness. God's favor is on the one that pursues righteousness, the, the faithful one, the faithful brother, the faithful sister. And then one more verse, chapter 16, verse 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, i.e., faithful, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So, of course, we see in the book of Proverbs this idea that we are called to be faithful, to live faithfully before God as, as God-fearing men and women. And then the Bible speaks of gentleness, another fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists in Galatians. Gentleness, look in chapter 15 with me. This verse will keep you out of a lot of trouble. A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Verse 4. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. And so, much of your life will be determined, listen to me, by how you respond to a harsh word. It's going to determine the quality and depth of your relationships. It's going to affect your marriage. It's going to affect you on the job. How do you respond when someone speaks harshly? Proverbs says, Solomon says, that when we answer, answer gently, it just lets the air out of their balloon. It, it doesn't escalate things. It causes things to die down. And, and we need to learn this idea of gentleness, gentleness with our speech. When someone is angry at us, the best thing we can do is answer gently and, 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 and not escalate things, gentleness. And then, self-control. Solomon speaks of self-control. This is a major theme, by the way, of the book of Proverbs. I want to show you this. Look in chapter 16, verse 32. He who is slow to anger can control his temper. He who is slow to anger is better 
than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who captures the city. So he's saying a man that can control himself is stronger than a, a large army. Look what it says in chapter 17, verse 27. He who restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Self-control. You can restrain his words, has a cool spirit, a calm spirit, controls his attitude, controls his temper. And then look in verse 28 of chapter 17. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. So even someone that's a fool... (laughs) Someone that's naive, someone that's simple. Even that kind of person is considered wise when they control their tongue. Right? Isn't that what it says? A a, a really important verse. And so one of the the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And Solomon, in these verses and in other verses in Proverbs, talks much about the idea of self-control. We need to have self-control in our lives or we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. Self-control. And this has all sorts of applications, right? Um, food. Um, road rage. Um, relationships. I mean, it has all sorts of implications for our lives. Self-control. Now, number two. Let me show you how, what all this means. Walking in wisdom is synonymous with the spirit-filled life. I think you can see those connections there. So this means, if that's true, if... If walking in wisdom, living like Solomon tells us to live, is, is synonymous with the spiritual life, this is going to mean that we need God's help to walk in wisdom. Because the fruit that Paul mentions are fruit of what? The Spirit. It's not your fruit. It's not the fruit of Wade. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So that means the Spirit is doing it. He's bearing that fruit through our lives. I think one of the mistakes that, that people make when they study the fruit of the Spirit, is they, is they look at it and they say, okay, I'm going to be more loving. Okay, uh, I'm going to be more joyful tomorrow. Okay, I'm going to be more patient. Okay, I'm going to be more self-control. I'm going to be more, I'm going to be more kind. And, and they think, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to figure this out and I'm just going to do better. And how long does that last? Not long at all, right? Because you can't do it. You can't consistently live out these characteristics that Solomon mentions, which are parallel with what Paul writes. The Spirit's got to do it in your life. And so this walking in wisdom means that we need God's help. You you remember what Jesus said in John 15? Talks about abiding in Him. He said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing, 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 nothing. So if we're going to bear through the Spirit, if we're going to live a life of wisdom, we've got to have the Spirit doing it in our lives. And you say, well, how does that happen? I mean, how does the Spirit bear this fruit in my life? How does this, this lifestyle of wisdom occur in my life? Well, if you look there on number three, the Holy Spirit will help you acquire and apply God's wisdom. As you give him control of your life. So now we're getting down to the practical application of all of this. The Holy Spirit will help you acquire, that's learn it, and apply, that's live it. God's wisdom as you give him control of your life. So, 
if you want the Holy Spirit's help to bear the fruit or live a life of wisdom, whatever you want to call it, they're synonymous. If you want the Holy Spirit's help, he's got to have control. He's got to be calling the shots. That, that's what Paul means, by the way, in Ephesians 5.18, where he says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. What he's saying there, the contrast is, is intended to help us understand what the filling of the Spirit means. When you're drunk with wine, wine begins to affect your inhibitions, your motor skills. It begins to control you, your speech, your thought, your actions. That's what, that's what uh, excess of alcohol does. And, and Paul says, don't let anything like that control you. Let the Spirit fill you. Let the Spirit control you. Let Him have control of your life. Now, I want to give you just a, a little bit of Holy Spirit 101 theology because there's a lot of ab- abuse uh, when it comes to the teaching of the Spirit, a lot of, of, lot of false doctrine out there about the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that when we meet Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, verse somewhere, 13, somewhere right in there. When we meet Christ, when we're saved, for me that happened when I was nine years old, at that moment we are baptized in the Spirit. That word baptized means immersed. The, it means the Spirit comes into our lives, that's what it means, and places us in the body of Christ. We're baptized in the Spirit. It's, it's parallel with the idea that the Spirit indwells us. Romans 8 speaks of the Spirit indwelling us when we know Christ. And so here's what that means. If you are saved, if you've been born again, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, lives in you. Pretty awesome thought, isn't it? Now, why are we so weak and anemic and apathetic and complacent and worldly i mean if that's if if god himself lives in us and by the way god the holy spirit is just as much god as god the son and just as much god as god the father he's the third person of the godhead one god in essence and nature existing in three co-equal co-eternal persons that's the the doctrine of the trinity so the holy spirit is, is is a part of the trinity and he lives in you god himself lives in you if that's true why don't we see that why don't we see supernatural things happening where we are empowered to really let our light shine and be salt in this culture? It comes back to the idea of the Spirit's control of your life. Let me give you a little phrase. Write this down. It's not original with me. I don't even remember where I got it. The Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is resident in your life. That's true of every Christian. That will never change. He's, he's indwelling you. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is resident in your life. The question is, is he president of your life? Does he have control? Do you surrender to him? So you say, wait, practically, what does that look like? How do I surrender to the Spirit? How do I let the Spirit fill up my life and obey Ephesians 5, 18? Very quickly. You just daily make the decision to confess your sin and get your heart clean before the Lord, and then you ask the Spirit just to fill you. Holy Spirit, you have control. You lead me, you guide me, you direct me, and by faith I believe that you're doing that. You exhale, you confess your sin, you inhale. You ask the Spirit to fill you and believe by faith that He is. And when you blow it and you you mess up, confess that sin and say, you didn't have control at this Spirit. I, I took over control, but I want you, Holy Spirit, to, to have control anew and afresh in my life. And, and as you do that, 
uh, consistently, day by day, you are walking in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when He has control, He's controlling your speech, your actions, your thoughts, everything. When He has control, He will help you acquire and apply God's wisdom as you give Him that control. Now, before I go to number four, because I, I went over that real fast. Before I go to number four, any questions on that, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? Let me tell you why I kind of can't there for a moment. The, there are some, some denominations that teach that there's this second experience with the Spirit. Like, you get saved, and that's one thing, and that's good. Okay, you're saved. But then you need to have this second blessing where the Spirit baptizes you. Okay, where you're baptized in the Spirit. And, and most of those den- denominations say that when that happens, the evidence will be you speak in tongues. Okay? Now, it's a very simple biblical way to refute that argument. Number one, 1 Corinthians 12 says that if, you, if you're in Christ, you've been baptized in the Spirit. So that happened when you got saved. Okay? He, he came into your life. He came to dwell in you. He baptized you in the Spirit. And then Paul says, I think it's in chapter 14, I'm not sure the exact verse, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, not all speak in tongues, do they? So all are baptized, but not all speak in tongues. So that means that this idea of the second blessing, this evidence by speaking tongues, that's not a biblical idea, okay? When you got saved, you got all of the Spirit you're ever going to get. You got all of the Holy Spirit in your life, amen? The question is, that's what we're getting at here, does he have all of you? You surrender to him on a daily basis. That, that's what we're dealing with here. So any questions about, the, about the, the Holy Spirit before we go into number four? Any questions? Yes, ma'am, Ms. Billy. Um, I believe that in the Bible we see two things happening with the Holy Spirit. One is every believer is, is indwelt by the Spirit. And there, and, and there are times when God um, gives people a special infilling of the Spirit, a special empowerment by the Spirit to accomplish special tasks. For example, I believe that happened on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, all the believers were together. I believe they were indwelt with the Spirit. But God came upon them in a special way to empower them to preach the gospel there in Jerusalem to people there from all over the world speaking different languages. So they heard the gospel in their, in their language. Um, and so the Holy Spirit can come upon us for a special infilling, infilling for a special, you know, something he wants us to do. But that doesn't mean we're not indwelt in the first place. We have the Spirit, but sometimes the Spirit will give us a special empowerment for service. Yeah. That answer your question? Any other, any other questions? And again, there's, there's a lot of discussion about the role of the Old Testament, the role of the Spirit in the Old Testament, and that's an entirely different sermon. We don't have time to go there about the continuity between the Testaments and the role of the Spirit between the Testaments. And, and, and I, to be honest with you, I kind of go back and forth about the role of the Spirit in the Old Testament, but we don't have time for that, so don't ask any of that. All right. Email me. Any other questions?
Any other questions? Okay. Number four. Let's kind of put all this together. We said that walking in wisdom is synonymous with the spirit-filled life. Everybody got that? Number two, this means you need God's help to walk in wisdom because it's the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will help you acquire and apply God's wisdom as you give Him control of your life. But here's number four. With the Spirit's aid, you can pursue the type of lifestyle that God tells us is wise and leads to life. With the Spirit's aid, you can pursue what Solomon says. That type of lifestyle that, that God tells us is wise and leads to life. Now, let me address another false teaching that's out there. It's this idea of let go and let God. Okay? Okay, it's through the Spirit. The Spirit's going to do it all, so I'm just going to kind of sit back and relax and know that the Spirit's in my life, and, you know, He'll do it. He'll do whatever I need. He'll just he'll make it happen. That is not a balanced biblical teaching. The Bible teaches that we are totally dependent upon the power of the Spirit to accomplish anything, but the Bible also teaches our our effort our responsibility to pursue the right things to do the right things and and both are taught in scripture for example turn to philippians chapter 2 with me i want to show you this philippians 2 Look what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So he's saying, God has saved you. You're saved now. Live like it. Live like a saved person. Work it out. Live up to that position you have in Christ. Let, let your position in Christ affect your practice where people can see that Jesus makes a difference. So, so what he means by work, he doesn't mean work for your salvation. That's not what he means at all. I mean, he says it all over the place that you're justified by faith in Christ. But he's saying, live up according to your position in Christ. Begin to live out your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So he's saying, do something, all right? Live the right way. Look what it says in the next verse. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we work, we do things, we have responsibility, we put forth effort and discipline in our lives, but it's the Spirit that empowers that and fuels that. So we're totally dependent, but we've also got to be disciplined and make right decisions. Both are there in Scripture. And if you, if you emphasize one to the exclusion of the other, you get out of balance. That makes sense? Let me show you another place. Turn to 2 Peter with me near the back of the New Testament. There in verse 3, Peter writes that his, God's divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. In other words, God has given you everything you need to live a godly life. We have no excuse because God's given us everything we need. So that's dependence, right? God's the one that gives us what we need to live a holy life. But look what he says in verse 5. Now for this very reason also, apply all diligence. So both are in Scripture. What we need comes from the Spirit, but we're to be diligent. Apply diligence to our life so we can begin to live it out, empowered by 
the Spirit of God. Now, let me give you this quote from Jerry Bridges. I think, is that in your notes? I put that in your notes. Is there a long quote at the bottom? Okay. Just read along with me. Jerry Bridges is one of my favorite authors. This comes from his book, The Practice of Godliness, which, by the way, is a fabulous book. Great book. I'm using it. My, I read my Bible in my quiet time, and then I spend a few moments reading just small excerpts from that book, and it is a great book. Uh, he wrote a book called The Pursuit of Holiness, which is wonderful, and The Practice of Godliness, which is wonderful. They're both thin books, but they are rich and biblical and, and clear and concise and great. And he wrote one of my favorite top five books called Discipline of Grace. If you haven't read Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges, put that on your reading list. It is a great, it, it, was, it, was, it was life-changing for me, that book, Discipline of Grace. It taught me some things about sanctification I needed to learn and about preaching the gospel to myself. But I won't, that's a whole other song. So, all right, here's Jerry Bridges' quote. We need to learn that the Bible teaches us both total responsibility and total dependence in all aspects of the Christian life. I once read a statement to the effect that there's nothing a Christian can do to develop the fruit of the Spirit in his life. It is all the work of the Holy Spirit. Sensing that, at best, such a statement failed to present a balance of scriptural truth, I took out my concordance and looked up various passages that refer to one or more of the nine character traits listed as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So he looked at verses like we just looked at in Proverbs that relate to the fruit of the Spirit. Here's what he came up with. For every one of those traits, I found one or more passages in which we are commanded to exhibit them. We are enjoined to love, to rejoice, to live in peace with each other, and so forth. These commands address our responsibility. So the, the, the fruit is produced by the Spirit, but he only begins to produce in those who are being diligent and, and doing the right thing. Does that make sense? Who take the responsibility themselves to live a godly life. So both are in the Bible. Total dependence, total responsibility, disciplined lives. And so we've got to put both of those into practice. So back up for a minute and think about Proverbs. We've seen the parallels. If we're going to begin to live the kind of way that we see presented us in Proverbs, the, the, the map that that we see laid before us by Solomon, the, the course that he charts for us. If we're going to live like that. We've got to make some effort, but understand that we can only make that effort and live out that effort by the power of the Spirit in our life as he has control of our life. Does that make sense? By the way, that's just what we're talking about now is just basic sanctification. Okay? It's like, for me, you use the illustration of a, a farmer. You know, a farmer plants a seed, and he cultivates the soil, and he sprays weed killer, and he makes sure it's getting the water it needs, and he does all the work of cultivation. He does the hard work of cultivation, but ultimately only God can make a seed grow. Which you've heard me say this before, I've never met an atheist farmer. Have you? Maybe there are some out there, but they understand that. You do your part, but God's got to do his part, else you're sunk, Right? And to me, that's a beautiful picture of sanctification. We, we put in the work. We cultivate our heart. We prepare our heart for, by the word of God and by prayer for God to do a work. But ultimately, after we do the work, God's the one that makes us grow. God's the one that changes us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we've got to maintain that balance or else we get into trouble. So that's wisdom. I think what Solomon's talking about here is wisdom for fruitful living because it looks a whole lot like the spirit-filled life. 